The ongoing ructions of the COVID-19 pandemic are writ large in this year's World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report, published in partnership with Zurich Insurance Group, revealing a marked divergence in economic recovery from the crisis. Many countries are recovering rapidly, but others are struggling. Today, we explore why the need for international cooperation to address global challenges has arguably never been greater. I'm Tom Parker, and joining me today to discuss this is John Scott, Head of Sustainability Risk, and Guy Miller, Chief Market Strategist and Head of Macroeconomics, both from Zurich Insurance Group. Welcome to you both. Guy, I'm going to start with you. COVID-19 has put pressure on health systems and exposed global health inequalities. How does that impact long-term economic growth potential? Well, I think decades of underinvestment by rich economies in their health systems was really called out by the pandemic. Um, While for developing countries, it highlights only too clearly, I think, the need to focus on healthcare in the longer term. Those countries better positioned have been the ones who have been more resilient, being able to keep their economies open and functioning and productive. Consequently, what we've seen is that these regions have recovered quicker, being able to get their economic activity back up to and actually beyond the pre-COVID level. So it really shows the importance of having a robust healthcare system. Respondents from the Global Risks Perception Survey, comprised of findings from nearly a thousand academic, business, government, civil society and thought leaders, rated climate action failure as the risk with potential to inflict most damage on a global scale over the next decade. John, how can the lack of shared urgency over climate change be addressed? If you look at the economic impacts of the pandemic right now, including tight supply chains, rising commodity prices, inflation, and especially increased levels of public debt, and really central banks that are coming to the end of their firepower in terms of dealing with some of those things, make it even more challenging for nations to really start implementing the transition policies that will really have material impacts on their economies and citizens. And really, it's hard to see how any transition of this scale, if you think of you know past industrial revolutions, for example, how, any, how this transition can be anything but disruptive and disorderly, especially if the greenwashing or, or stalling or commitments that we see in both business and governments at the moment delay the transition. But there's reasons to be cheerful. I think that was a song, Reasons to be Cheerful, one, two, three. And my reasons to be cheerful, the first one really, is that the commitments that were made at at COP26 are really getting the world on track to reduce warming potentials. But there's a long way to go yet. Agreement on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, effectively the rule book on carbon trading, and the announcement of a new IFRS framework on disclosure standards will really help drive the transition. Maybe one thing just to build on what, what John said there, I think we also have to be you know, conscious of the, the economic cycle. I think companies are in a very strong position currently, given the fact that the economy is still uh, growing significantly above trend and likely to do so for the next year or so. They also have the ability to capitalise on incredibly low interest rates to help fund the transition that companies themselves need to undertake. And the good news is they are doing that. They are taking on the facility to term out debt. They are taking on more funding to help that transition process. And I think that's hugely encouraging. Yes, and maybe it's my second reason to be cheerful. 
based on that ability of private sector to raise capital at the moment. And I think it's it's going to become a critical strategic question for any business how to position itself in, in the transition. In a disruptive transition, there will be winners and losers. So waiting for governments to lead with regulation risks losing too much time really on, on the innovation that's really required to drive a successful transition. Thank you. China has become an increasing influence in the developing world with some voicing concerns about its economic leverage in developing countries. What are the challenges and opportunities posed by China's growing economic power in the short, medium and long term? More broadly, what role can organisations play in mitigating geopolitical tensions? Well, I think when we look back over the last almost uh, 10 years, really, since the, the Belt and Road Initiative really kicked off, I mean, China saw an opportunity to export some of its excess capacity in terms of capital and and construction activities. And they were able to do that to countries that were very much in need of infrastructure and investment. So there was almost a symbiotic relationship that was created there. And I think that's something that the world can learn from. Many Western countries had underinvested, undersupported a lot of these emerging regions. And I think failed to grasp that mutual benefit that can come from that. So in the near term, I think we're likely to see a bit of a shift. I think we are seeing greater investment in some of these emerging economies coming through from other parts of the world to offset simply what China is doing. But I think more broadly, the real issue is that you've got two economic superpowers striving for supremacy. And with that comes the inevitable frictions. And I guess in the last five or six years, we've seen that manifest itself in the form of trade tensions and tariffs. And I think from a business perspective, it's important that companies push back when they see the the uneconomic advantage of that. It's important that trade associations, again, help shape policy in order to create a better landscape. Brilliant. Thank you both. The pandemic spurred a leap in digital technology, but there is a perception that less developed countries and some disadvantaged people in developed countries may be at risk of digital inequality. Is this just a problem for the so-called analogue economies, or are there implications that impact internationally, such as cybersecurity? Technology plays such a fundamental role in in almost everything we do. But it's a fact that around 40% of the world's population is not yet connected to the internet. And these people or these populations who who are not connected are already facing inequalities in, in digital security. And, and there's a couple of trends that are, are happening in the technological world, which are, some people call Internet 3.0 or, or the metaverse, where the connection between systems and the ability for people to sort of effectively live in an almost parallel universal business world economy will exist very soon or exists really at the moment. I think for people with vulnerable populations who are digitally at risk, especially low income parts of the population, they're much more likely to be victims of cybercrime than, than wealthier people. And in other situations, for digital footprints mean that that creates new risk for citizens, especially in the growing risk around deep fakes, for example, that could compromise technologies or, or approaches like biometric authentication. So I think it works across both countries with little penetration of technology, but also in wealthy countries where significant minorities don't have access to the digital world. The Global Risks Report notes that space is becoming increasingly commercialised, with businesses entering a realm once the sole domain of governments. 
What are the challenges of managing the governance of space and are there parallels with other global risks? I'll start with you, John. The reality is at the moment is that there's what we call a low Earth orbit space race going on, largely driven by the private sector uh, and in turn driven by the desire to improve accessibility to the internet, broadband internet through telecommunications. These low Earth orbit constellations of much smaller satellites, I mean up to perhaps 30,000 in, in a particular orbit, creates all sorts of challenges because the, the reality is that, that space is sort of governed by very old agreements going back to the 60s, which never have been updated. You know, going back to what we talked about earlier in terms of the competition between major economies and nations for not only economic control, but political control and influence around the world. Space is just another frontier where that's happening. Yeah, it's a fascinating um, subject. You could do a whole podcast on, on that part of it. The final question for both of you. Out of the survey comes a strong perception that new models of international cooperation need to be found. How can businesses contribute to a new model of coordinated global response that moves beyond conventional multilateralism? So one of the lessons of the pandemic was that really sort of adaptive resilience is the way to solve many of the big challenges that are talked about in the Global Risk Report. We saw the incredible innovation that was really part of a partnership between the private sector and governments to develop new vaccines, which in the past would have taken decades to develop and deliver. So that kind of lesson of public-private interaction, it's that kind of thinking that needs to be harnessed and developed, that adaptive resilience thinking to other global risks, for example, like climate change. Yeah, maybe if I add to that, I think over recent years, we've seen a couple of really important issues. We've, of course, had the pandemic, but we've also had the rise of populism as well, which can be hugely uh, disruptive, both from an economic and a social perspective. And I think one of the key areas where there is cause for hope, but more needs to be done, is around the robustness of institutions. You know, we've seen in countries where we have robust, strong institutions that can bridge party political shifts. These economies, these regions are in a much better shape longer term. As a result of that, it's really important that I think companies are able to push for the evolution of these institutions, they're able to build on their industry bodies and associations because it has to also come from, from businesses. It can't just be up to governments. I just want to stress this concept of the end of globalization, I think, is overdone. If anything, we can see the benefits of globalization and the benefits by working together that we can see it can serve not only companies and individuals, but societies more broadly. And that needs to happen if we're to tackle these big issues that we've been discussing, particularly around things like climate change and what happens in terms of migration, some of the pressing issues of societies today. Guy, John, thank you very much for your time today. And to our listeners, you can find other episodes and related content at zurich.com forward slash global risks.